Well, we've been on a summer journey together this summer. Uh, we have been talking through the parables of Jesus, talking through stories Jesus told. And, uh, you know, we have a name for these stories. We call them parables. And parables are one of the main ways that Jesus speaks and teaches to not only his disciples, but mostly actually to outside groups of people when he's teaching. There are actually 39 distinct parables in Scripture. Uh, some are short. I think there's one that's even just one verse. Uh, some are a little bit longer, like one we'll read maybe in the next couple of weeks. Uh, some are unique. They're only found in one gospel, like our parable today. Some are more wildly, rec- wildly recorded. They are widely recorded. They are in multiple gospels. Uh, but the word parable in the Greek language literally means to come alongside to come alongside. And so Jesus, as he's teaching, as he's telling these stories, he is coming alongside these people, trying to help them understand a truth, understand just a lesson, these teaching moments that Jesus has. They are, they are calls to change. And he's helping people to understand what he's actually calling them to do. Think about the parables that we have talked about so far. We've talked about the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee and the call to, uh, to, to humility. We've talked about the parable of the wise and the foolish builder and the call to obedience. We talked about the parable of the good Samaritan, the call to, to love and to be the neighbor. We talked about the parables of the kingdom last week and the call to be a kingdom participant. The parable that we're going to read this week is in Luke chapter 14. So if you want to go there, there's actually two parables in this teaching as well. Uh, Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be for a little bit. I have a lot of sticky notes in my Bible, so that means you know we're going to be moving a little bit today. Uh, But Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be at home. And so if you want to go there with me, if you need your pew Bible, the pew Bible is on on page 898. uh, If you want want to get there. And if you need a Bible, that Bible is now yours. You take it. That's yours. And... uh, I'll just, I'll just give you a little warning as we go forward this morning. This, this, what we're going to read in Luke chapter 14, are not easy words to hear. Jesus is talking through some hard truths to these people around him. And, and Luke, in Luke chapter uh, 14, it's really a piece where, where Jesus has kind of been talking about hard things. He, he's not going easy on anybody. He's talked about... There being a narrow door. He's talked about just mourning for Israel. He's had, there's a kind of a strange parable or two around. Then we get to this passage, which is just objectively a hard passage to hear. So Luke chapter 14, we'll get there, and I'll just, just open with me and we'll read together. This is uh, just, a, I think, just a hard teaching of Jesus. And here, here's what it says. In verse 25 is where we're starting. Large crowds are traveling with Jesus... And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why don't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have 
cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit for neither the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Again, this is not a not an easy passage. Can you imagine just being in the crowd that day? You're, you're following Jesus. Jesus is on his way. There's a large crowd following him, and he just he turns to them and said, Hey, you hate your family, take up your cross and give up everything, and then you can be my disciple. <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, maybe I'm I'm just gonna go home. I, you know, I just I don't think this is for me. I don't know. Like you could just imagine being in the crowd. It's almost like, you know, Jesus sort of like lost us at hello <laughs> in this passage, right? He didn't have us at hello. He lost us at hello in this passage. It, you know, it's just, what in the world is he talking about? You know, who does this guy think he is? And I was thinking about that this week, though. I was thinking about just our immediate reaction to just kind of grimace when we hear this. Like, ooh, I don't hate your father and mother and your brother and sister, hate your, hate your own life and you can't be my disciple. Our, our immediate reaction to just immediately sort of, sort of grimace, I think, is actually sort of an indictment on the brand of Christianity that is around today. All right, we read this passage and we think, I'm not sure I'm, I'm mature enough to read and understand what Jesus is trying to say here. I'm not sure this is really for me. And I just want to say this, this is actually just it. Jesus is not speaking to a crowd of mature followers at this point. Who is Jesus speaking to when he's saying these things? He is speaking to to people who are actively trying to follow him. They're actively trying to start this relationship with Jesus. And Jesus turns around and he says, hate your family, take up your cross, give up everything. And if you can't do that, you cannot be my disciple. This is really... An evangelistic text for Jesus. He's trying to get people to follow him. Now think about that. This is, this is wild. This is, this is Jesus inviting people to follow him for the first time. So I asked this question. Could, could there be more to what he's saying than just how we interpret it on its face? I, I think essentially what Jesus is doing here is is laying out the terms for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? And in this passage, we see three different times essentially saying, look, if you can't do this, you can't be my disciple. If you cannot do this, you cannot be my disciple. So what I want to do today is I want to look at these terms that Jesus puts here, these three times that Jesus says that, and I want to ask this question, and I want you to think about this question as we go through Have I responded to Jesus on his terms or on mine? Have I responded to Jesus on his terms or on mine? Because Jesus lays out pretty clearly what the terms are if you're going to follow him. And whether you've been a Christian for 70 years or you're just beginning to think about this whole Jesus thing, I think there's a lot to think about with these three things that Jesus says here. Here's Here's the first thing. The first sort of term, we get it in verse 26. Let me get back to Luke chapter, here we go. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. 
That is an attention grabber right at the beginning of his little sermon here. If you do not hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, questions automatically arise. Am I really supposed to hate, hate my brother and my mother and my father? And Didn't we just talk about the Samaritan like three chapters ago and I'm supposed to love him but hate my family? Like, what is... What's going on? I just don't quite understand what Jesus is saying here, but I think if we're going to, we need to zoom out a little bit. Because Jesus, I don't think, is actually calling us to hate. I think Jesus is actually calling us to sort of a superior love. This is sort of the first term that that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to a superior love. All right, let's go back a little bit and try to kind of, let's go back to the book of Matthew. Matthew will help us understand this a little bit. Matthew chapter 22 is where we'll start at first. Uh, and in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is in a conversation with an expert in the law. And, uh, and we read this interaction. Hearing that Jesus had silenced, uh, verse 34 of Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The first thing that we should be doing. Love God with everything. Love God with everything. God is everything, and all of our affections belong to him. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But I want you to hear this. The very first thing, you know, Which is the greatest commandment? Love God with everything that you have. Every affection, everything that you have, love God. These two things, though, love God and love your neighbor, they go together, right? One stems from the other. Love for neighbor stems from a love for God. Go backwards a little bit more. Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 37, we find a a familiar passage. This is going to sound a little familiar as as we go forward today. And here's, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see now, you read Luke 14 in the context of the greater, greater piece of Scripture. And you see, Jesus is not calling us to, to hate our family. He's not calling us to hate our, our brother or sister. And just using that, that term, hate, is a very strong word. It's a, an offensive word. But, and I don't, I don't intend to soften it. I think Jesus probably meant what he said. But here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying Love for your family, love for your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, even for yourself, should look like hate in comparison to the love that you have for me. Is he calling us to hate? No, absolutely not. But is he calling us to, we we are still called to love. This is where we come full circle and our, our perspectives change a little bit. Because I wasn't lying. That, that story that we read about the Good Samaritan is just three chapters before what we just read in Luke chapter 14. Right? There is a call to love everyone, no matter who they are. <laughs> There's not ever a call in Scripture to hate father, mother, brother, sister. It is just that your love for God 
And your love, your love for your family pales in comparison to love for God. It has to. And in fact, later on in the New Testament, we see this played out. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How can we do that if we don't first have just a, an, an extreme love for Christ? We can't. One flows from the other. To Christianity, following Jesus, is discipleship. It's much more than just being obedient. There's, there's a love. Biblical discipleship starts with being so in love with God that our love for him drives everything that we do. This is what biblical discipleship starts with. Love for God. And not only does it start there, Jesus in Luke chapter 14 says, if, if this isn't you, you you can't be my disciple. You can't. You cannot be my disciple. So we move on to this. this that's the first term, right? We need a, a superior kind of love for God. But he keeps going. If we don't do that, we, we cannot be a disciple. But he goes on in the next verse, verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What's the term here? Jesus, what are you trying to tell us? It's, Jesus here is requiring out of us not only a superior kind of love, but just a full devotion. Carry your cross and follow me. Now this phrase, carry, carry your cross, maybe one of the most misunderstood and misapplied terms in Scripture. <laughs> All right, sometimes we, we'll be in conversations with people and they're in a bad relationship or a bad circumstance or this struggle, that struggle, whatever it may be, and the, and the sentence ends with, that's just the cross I have to bear. That's not the kind of cross that Jesus is talking about here. Right? Think, think about who he's talking about. Put yourself in the shoes of the people that Jesus is talking to. What is the cross in the first century? The cross in the first century is basically a torture device. It's an instrument of, to kill someone. And Jesus is saying, pick up your cross and follow me. The only time you would carry a cross in this time is if you were a convicted criminal and you were punished to death. They would strap the cross beam of the cross to your back and make you walk through the city in sort of a public shaming to your death, basically. They would take you with your cross strapped on and they would put you up and hang you on the cross and that's how you would die. This is the only way that you would, you would carry a cross. Feel, I want you to feel the weight of this sentence that Jesus says here. Pick up your cross and follow me. It would be like me today saying, if you don't pick up your electric chair, you cannot follow me. And that is probably the reaction that they got as well. Like, what? What? Pick up my, pick up my, what? But this is, this is, again, some, some strong language. But the reality is this. If you are picking up a cross, you are a dead man. Any takers? <laughs> so Jesus has started this off with, hey, you need to hate your family or you can't be my disciple. Now you need to pick up your cross and follow me or you can't be my disciple. Right, this, this is just some interesting thing. This is strong language here, but don't miss 
what he's saying. If you are a disciple, according to Scripture, you are dead. You are dead to yourself. We die to the life that we live when we say yes to Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 comes to mind. I know we, we talked about this verse a whole heck of a lot uh, the other in a, in a series previously to this, but just I want to just you hear this again. I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul saying this. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We are dead to ourselves, but we are made fully alive in Christ. This is the carrying the cross that Jesus is talking about. It's about dying to ourselves. And that's probably the hard part, because when we do that, our priorities change. We don't determine everything about ourselves. Jesus does. God determines everything about us. We go where he wants us to go. And this is where we start to get into these two parables that Jesus tells in this passage. We really get kind of two images. And this first image that Jesus gives is, is about, a, about workers constructing a building. He says, you need to estimate the cost to see if you can complete it. And this is, I, in my opinion... This is where Christianity sort of sells itself short now. Because basically, we just ask two questions. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes to both. Welcome to the family. And there's some truth to that. Romans says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. There's, there's definitely some truth to this, but Jesus is, is pleading with us, count the cost. Count the cost of what it means that you're now saying yes. Because there is a cost to discipleship that oftentimes we overlook. There are changes that will happen and need to happen in our lives that oftentimes we, we overlook. I read a quote this week that honestly shook me a little bit. There's a guy named John Stott. He's an author, preacher, Here's what he says. I've, I think I've read some of his stuff before. Here's what he says, though. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to following him with, without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantries of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Half-built towers. Those three words have stuck in my head this week. Because this, this, is, this is what Jesus says. He says, you know, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost, see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to complete it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. 
half-built towers. That imagery, I think, is going to stick with me for a long time. And here's the craziest part about this. He wrote that over 50 years ago. That fits like a glove right now in 2022. He wrote this a long time ago. Nominal Christianity. Half-built towers because we have... We've gotten people to say yes, but we have not discipled them into what it actually means to follow Christ. Half-built towers. That imagery is going to be with me, I think, for a long time. The second image that Jesus uses, though, is an image of a battle. And we use battle imagery a lot. We talk about spiritual warfare. You know, Ephesians chapter 6, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's about the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But again, this imagery is about counting the cost. If you're going to go to battle and you've got 10,000 men, are you going to sit down and see whether or not your 10,000 can beat the 20,000 coming at you? And if not, aren't you going to go out and try and make peace? It's about counting the cost. I read another author this week who was talking about this passage, and what he said, I think, was pretty profound. He said, Christianity today, and this is today. He was writing in the last five years. Christianity today looks more like a peacetime faith and not a wartime faith. And there's a big difference between the two, he says. Wartime faith, always asking the question, Wartime, anything. How, what can I sacrifice to further this cause? What resources can I give to further this cause? How can I best contribute to the success of, of this mission? Where a peacetime faith is more of, how can I be more comfortable? <laughs> how can I make this more fun? What are some things I can do to just, what haven't we tried yet to make this more fun? He's saying we've got to consider the cost. We, are, we should operate more in a wartime faith kind of mindset instead of a, a leisurely, peacetime faith sort of mindset. We need to consider the cost. Are you willing to give yourself fully to the cause of Christ? Are you willing to take up your cross? And if not, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. He has a, a third term here. Term one. He requires a superior love. Term two, Jesus requires full devotion. Term three is pretty clear. He requires complete sacrifice. You get to Luke chapter 14, verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Jesus says, for the cause of Christ, we should be willing to give up everything that we have. And that's, that's literally the word, give up. <laughs> There's not like a, a softer meaning hitting and hiding in here. Like, that's what it means. It means give up. Say goodbye to. Relinquish. Right, this, is, this is what we're talking about here. And, and we, it literally means that. To say goodbye, to abandon, to renounce. And we give up everything that we have. We say, God, everything is yours for the sake of the kingdom. I think there's a great passage in the book of Hebrews that actually highlights, highlights this a little bit. If you want to go to Hebrews chapter 10. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10, there's a passage uh, starting in verse 32, just a few verses. Here's what it says. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. 
Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were treated, who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You were not afraid to have things taken from you, confiscated from you because of your faith, because you knew you had greater and better possessions coming. They were willing to give up everything. Then you get to Hebrews chapter 11. We, we, this chapter, the, the hall of faith, we love to call it. And you start in verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance, saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The people that, that the author here in Hebrews is talking about have the kind of sacrifice that Jesus is looking for in Luke chapter 14. If you cannot give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. It reminds me of the famous C.S. Lewis quote. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And he ends saying, We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. I don't know about you, but these... These terms that Jesus is putting out there, these requirements to be his disciple, his follower, these are not things that are for the faint of heart. Right? Jesus comes out and these people, again, I mean, you get to the, just the, the, that first verse in Luke chapter 14. Right? This is who he's talking to here. I went to Galatians, sorry. Luke chapter, <laughs> Luke chapter 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and he turns to them and he says this. Hate your family, or you can't be my disciple. Pick up your cross, or you can't be my disciple. Give up everything you have, or you cannot be my disciple. I mean, this is what Jesus requires. He requires a superior love. He requires a, a full devotion. He requires complete sacrifice on our part. And I asked a question at the beginning of the, of the sermon that I wanted you to be thinking about. Have we responded to Jesus on his terms, or on ours. His terms are laid out pretty clear here. Do I have a, a superior love for him? Does my love for God shadow everything else? Am I willing to, to give up all of me, to, to, to pick up my own cross, die to myself and follow God? If not, I shouldn't be doing this. I cannot be his disciple. Am I willing to give up everything to be his disciple? Or are we in danger of, as Stott said, having half-built towers? This is not just a, a New Testament concept either. 
You know, one of my favorite Old Testament books is the book of Joshua. And uh, at the end of Joshua, Joshua is talking with his people. He is uh, basically reminding them of all that God has done in this, in the book of Joshua, but also just in their history. And in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua ends sort of this, this speech by calling out the people of God. I'm really calling, I'm a Phoenix Suns fan. The Phoenix Suns coach has this saying that I love. He says, I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you up. I'm using that forever, by the way. But Joshua has this conversation in chapter 24, verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Then he says this. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, and choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether your gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What's he saying? Count the cost of what it is going to be like to follow God. If you can't do it, go back and follow your other ones. But make a decision. But for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. We make the decision, yeah, we're willing to pay the cost. We're willing to, to do what it takes to follow God. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose this day whom you will serve. I think, I, I think Jesus missed an opportunity to quote Joshua here. <laughs> because he could have. I think at the end of this passage, he could have just said, hey, choose this day. If serving the Lord is undesirable to you, if following me is undesirable to you, make your choice. I'm going to serve the Lord. This is the cost of discipleship. This is, this is what these parables were about, considering the cost. The, there is a cost to following Jesus. We have to be willing to, to love him above anything else. We have to be willing to die to ourselves and live for him. Galatians chapter 2. We have to be willing to give up everything that we are, everything that we have in order to follow him. And this is what I want you to do this week. I want you, maybe, maybe, maybe you haven't ever thought about following Jesus in these terms. Think about it this week. Think about these terms. Am I willing to do this? Am I willing to, to go this far? Or am I willing to just leave a half-built tower and say, I, I wasn't ready. It's not for me. I'm going to go do my own thing. Consider the cost of following Jesus. Consider the cost. That's what I want you to do this week. I want you to just pray this week in your own time. Just pray and just consider the cost. Is, is this worth it for me? Is it worth it for me? Am I willing to do what God is calling me to do? To go where God is calling me to go? Am I willing to love him above everybody else? Anything else? Am I willing to die to myself? Galatians 2.20 Am I willing to give up everything in order to do this? And God, if there's a, if there's a weak spot, if, if I'm saying yes and you're thinking no, would you show me where that is? God, I want to follow you. Let that be a prayer this week. Let's pray.